to Bleacher Blum, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now, the current master of banter for the Houston Astros television broadcast team, Blummer. Well, here we are, and it feels like just Tuttle and I are hanging out in the bleachers because it was a rough ending to the Astros season, and we've had a couple of days to let that really sink in. It, w- it was a fun ride. Didn't end the way that Astro fans wanted. Didn't end the way I wanted. I'll be honest. I was obviously invested being an Astro employee and broadcaster. There would have been at least one benefit to myself if the Astros would have won. It would have been another ring to my collection, but it was not meant to be. And and maybe that's all it was. Maybe it was just the fact that the baseball gods shined down on the Washington Nationals and spoiled what was to be parade day for the Houston Astros Friday, November 1st. But instead, I am here in the bleachers with my boy, David Tuttle. And I think our job today is to explain what happened to the Astros in the in Game 7, in the World Series, and maybe offer a little bit of statistical insight that will t- kind of take the emotional edge off of what, a, what just happened to the Astros. Because I know the initial blast, and I saw a lot of it on Twitter, I uh, tweeted out nine more outs. The Astros had opportunities to go out there and try and score some runs. It was not to be. The Washington Nationals won it, and I proceeded to take my time and think about what I wanted to tweet out the next day, and I tweeted out that everybody should be proud of the Astros. And I still firmly believe that because we are spoiled. I will continue to say that throughout the offseason because next season is going to be a good season for the Astros also. But everybody... Not everybody. Everybody was in a very good mood. I got a lot of likes and a lot of retweets and a lot of very positive comments about the team. But there are going to be those people that get snappy, snippy, chippy, angry. But you know what? We've got championship problems down here in Houston. And they're a good thing. We all need to take a step back and realize that we should be grateful for the opportunity that we have to watch a team that is playing as well as it is. And I just want to give everybody a nice reminder and some stats that will back up why we should be disappointed, but at the same time, we should be grateful. The Astros in the last three regular seasons, their record is 311 and 175. That is a 64% winning percentage. During that span, they have three American League championships, three, I mean, sorry, two or three American League championship, American League West championships, two American League championships, which means two World Series appearances. They were one game away from winning that second World Series, and they have one title. In the playoffs, they went 25-19 and in that span. The Astros during the A.J. Hinch era, when he came on in 2015, their record, 481 and 329. That it's almost a 60% winning percentage. During that span, four or five years in the playoffs, they have played 50 postseason games. They are 28 and 22, and again, have a World Series championship. How about this? Per ESPN Stats and Info, the Astros have the most wins by any, any Major League Baseball team, and this includes postseason play in a three-year span. The Astros in a three-year span, 2017 to 19, 336 wins, one title. The Orioles right behind them from 1969 to 1971, 335, they had one title. And the New York Yankees, arguably the best era of baseball for the Yankees, 
332 wins and three championship titles. Tough to match that, but those are phenomenal numbers. So our champagne problems, our championship problems are that. In a three-year span, the Astros are the best team in Major League Baseball history. So let that sink in. Maybe that makes the pain a little bit worse because they didn't win game seven. But you got to give a lot of credit to the Washington Nationals, and we will break all this down. But it's been kind of cathartic for me to kind of break this down. And yes, I'm disappointed. I'm not upset. I'm not snapping. I'm not freaking out because I know this team is very good. David Tuttle is on this podcast with me. I'm sorry to inundate you with all these numbers early on, but I'm just trying to give everybody the impression that we are in a very good spot in Astros history, Astros history of baseball. This is the golden era. They have been very good. Tuttle, how did you take things and how has your week been? Good. Recovering from being sick. And uh, yeah, it's hard. I, like I said, I, I think I'm the voice of reason on this podcast uh, half the time because we do know it's a Astros heavy podcast, but uh, many of our listeners are involved with the Astros and you're employed by the Astros. And um, as the voice of reason, I think, uh, I think it was still an unusual World Series having the uh, visiting team win all seven games. That's I don't you know that's never been done obviously and then uh, my daughter's a little less by or less unbiased than I am, so she's really involved and heavily invested in the Astros and uh, was disappointed. So I had to dab some tears and you know kind of let her listen to Strasburg talk after post game, which I thought was awesome because I think she gets to understand these guys are human beings as well, very soft spoken just talks about the grind and, you know, doing it with the teammates and, and coming together at the right time. And I think those things become cliche for a reason, because in baseball, as we discussed off the pod, that's the truth. That's the way the world is. I mean, you just got to, you can't always control the outcome. You just got to get to work every day and, and put in your time and grind it out and work as hard as you can. And, uh, you know, sometimes it works out in your favor and sometimes it doesn't. And I think the Astro fans, to your point, have every reason to be um, maybe a little disappointed, but also to be proud of of what they accomplished this year. And uh, and I will I will give them a glimmer of hope here is that the uh, opening line favorites for the World Series next year, the favorites are the Houston Astros. Everybody. Nicely done, Tuttle. And good to have Tuttle on this podcast because he does kind of give us that even uh... – that even, uh, you know, personality, and he is going to have some analytics to back it up. He's also going to have that calm, soothing voice to uh, let us know that everything's going to be all right. And he's even looked into the future and checked on the numbers to see how well the Astros are prognosed to be next year. But, uh, you know, there's 27 other teams that wanted to be in the position of the Astros. Uh there were 29 other teams that uh, are, are jealous of what the Astros are doing and been able to do the last three years. It's just been a historic run by the Washington Nationals. And I think, you know, we could talk about this a little bit more maybe in, in, in a podcast down the road, but I really feel like, you know, professional athletes understand, and speaking of the grind, understand how it is to deal with failure. And I think baseball is unique in that sense that that is all we deal with. We deal with failure, and but the less we fail, the better we're going to do, obviously. But I think that when you, as a hitter, say, I could go three for 10, which means you're going to fail seven times and you can become the best in your business, it kind of speaks to how you handle failure. It's not the expectation of failure. It's how you handle it. And I really try and you know, 
emphasize this with my kids is, you know, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be 100% every single time. It's just how do you bounce back? How do you learn? How do you move on from that? Do you dwell on it? Is that what overcomes you and becomes you? You know, it's the it's the bounce back that I think that should become you. And I think it's how the Astros have been built. And I think that's what Jeff Luno is impressed upon us. And AJ Hinch is that culture of winning is dealing with the failure and moving on. But I do believe that baseball players uh, understand how painful it is. And it's going to take time for guys in that clubhouse to figure out how to move on with this because you're going to replay uh, that scenario in your head. And Tuttle can talk to this too, as far as dealing with the failure. But at the same time, it's also you know, ball players have the, this weird memory and this weird mentality of replaying. I could, I could bring up strikeouts from my past. I could bring up successes from my past. And I'm sure that Tuttle can do the same, but you know, do, you know, is, is the reason on this podcast that you have two ex ball players talking about this, we're, we're, we're trying to be a little more sane and subdued about it and just trying to wrap our heads around it because we have dealt with so much failure not just in our lives, but in our careers to get to a certain point of success and understanding how how grateful we should be for some of the successes that we have. Absolutely. And I think w what's funny about what you just touched on is that um, I used to think when I got into the real world here, the work world, after you got out of the locker room and out of, you know, maybe some of the media spotlight and some of the expectations you're putting on yourself is uh, I... I used to think the reason that I'd be a good uh, hire or a good worker at a, at a job site uh, in my chosen profession was because, you know, I know how to play on a team. I know how to work on a team and get along with people and all that stuff. But what I realized, the most invaluable or valuable piece of the puzzle is, like you said, getting knocked down and getting back up. I mean, that's really what it's about. That's what life's about, regardless of what the situation is. Um, it's about kind of getting back after it. And some people have a really hard time doing that, rightfully so. Uh, it's, not, it's not as easy as you would think. And I think baseball players um, have better, we're just more conditioned. We have more practice and athletes in general. I mean, you know how many 10-foot putts a golfer must have missed before they hit the, the actual putt with the, with the tournament on the line? I mean, it just... It's just innate, but it is funny how that changed my mentality. I was like, yeah, you know, I work really hard and I'm a good team player. And I thought, you know what? That's not the best skill set I bring to the table. The best skill set, as you said, we try and be a little measured here. The best skill set is, hey, I got my butt beat today, um, regardless of what it is. You know, I got a flat tire on the way to work or, you know, I, I woke up feeling sick, but I got to get up tomorrow and do it better and learn how to, you know, you know learn from those things and come out and be a better person. I think if we can instill that, as you said, in our children and in some of the listeners here, some of the fans, they'll understand it a little better too, because you know darn well, the Astros did not lose the World Series for lack of effort. No, that's exactly right. And that's where you get kind of lost a little bit. You're like, this should happen. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. Of course they didn't. But you know what else happened? The Washington Nationals went out there and played spectacularly perfect baseball to beat the Houston Astros. And they had to play every single game at the top of their level to go ahead and get past the Astros. Because we talked about it several podcasts ago about how do you beat the Astros? You have to play better than them. And you have to have a little bit of destiny on your side. And that's what the Washington Nationals did. And speaking of fans, we absolutely love all of you. You have been great. You've responded to us on Twitter. You've responded to us 
on Instagram. You were, you've responded to us on our, our uh, website too, in bleacherblums.com. We've gotten some great responses. I think we're going to head into that mailbag portion because I'm sure Tuttle's funneled through a lot of those and found some very good questions. So we do appreciate everybody who is subscribing to our podcast. Again, it's on most major platforms from Spotify to iHeartRadio to SoundCloud to Stitcher to, uh, you know, the, the most easy one to get on that everybody seems to enjoy, which is Apple iTunes. We are on there also. So feel free. If you don't find any of it on there, go to bleacherblums.com. You can find the podcast on there on most major platforms. You can also get into the archives and listen to previous podcasts, which is always a lot of fun because you can critique Tuttle and I and some of our predictions that went wrong in this World Series. I, I predicted in six games the Astros would win the World Series. Tuttle predicted seven. He got the seven right, but not the winner. And that's just how it goes. You know, We are going to give you educated opinions of our own. But we've, we've got some questions on our mailbag, which is also on that website, bleacherblums.com, that you can get to David Tuttle and myself. So without further ado, Tuttle, what, are we, what have we got this, uh, this sad, sad post-World Series mailbag? Yeah, I'm going to read all the questions, and some of them, we might, they might overlap, but instead of singling anybody out. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, the mailbag's actually pretty good. It's not a sad, boo-hoo-y thing. I think people... I give them a lot more credit. They go right into the free agency. <laughs> so we have quite a few free agency and kind of off-season questions, which I think are appropriate. And I will say, just to reiterate, we love the fan. The fan interaction is what makes it uh, what makes this kind of worthwhile. So uh, for me especially, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback, and, uh, and I really appreciate everybody writing in and, of course, rating and reviewing. And, and my thought on what you just said in terms of Stitcher and iTunes, if you can't find the Bleacher Blums podcast, folks, you ain't trying hard enough, right? So that doesn't mean it'll always upload <laughs> or anything like that, but you, you, you should find us. If you're looking, you should find us. All right, the first question is from Thomas V, uh, or Tomas V. Thank you, Thomas. Tomas, do you guys think that the Astros will be able to find a way to keep Garrett Cole for the 2020 season? Also, huge fan of the podcast and love hearing both of your opinions. Best, been listening since episode 16. There we go. Episode 16. That's right when we got into a groove, I think. Yeah, that's when we really found our voice, right? Uh, we're still kind of searching for it. But, you know, this postseason has created a lot of opportunities, but it also creates a lot of questions once it's over because that's how, you know, that's how society's working. That's how sports is working. It's the immediate hot stove. What's going on? What's happening next? And I really believe that kind of started with what the NFL has done in, as far as marketing their sport and creating a a conversation or a vibe around it that really goes throughout the entire season instead of just during the season. So the, you know, free agency, free agency is going to heat up. <clears throat> we'll get in depth a little bit more on Garrett Cole a little bit later, uh, you know, on, on some of his post game uh, conversations that he had and how he handled it. But for the time being, let's just take it on face value. Is there a chance that Garrett Cole comes back to the Astros? I would say yes. I don't think that it's out of the question, even with the comments that he's made. Well, obviously, uh, I'm going to I'm going to play some of those later and we'll talk about it a little bit later. But I do believe there's always a chance uh, he spoke and said as much about A.J. Hinch and how much he's learned. He spoke a little bit about Brent Strom and how he's become a better pitcher. Some of the friendships he's created in this clubhouse, hopefully some of those friendships kind of lean on him a little bit and maybe talk to him and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if you came back kind of thing? But, you know, we don't know ultimately internally what's going on with Garrett Cole. The fact is the dude's going to get paid. So how do you keep Garrett Cole in Houston? You break out the money bags and you give him the money that he wants and you convince him to stay here. 
Uh, you give them the years, you give them the money, you can get creative with it. You can give them the Bobby Bonilla treatment and pay him until he's about 75 years old, but he is going to get generational type money. So the way you keep Garrett Cole is obviously to pay him. And that's the best way to convince a guy to come to your team is give him the money. Blummer, perfect answer. I think it's too early to say whether he will or he won't. And this isn't really a, we're not in the prediction business in regards to that. I think based on the question, do you think the Astros will find a way to be able to keep him? Um, I, I would agree. It just depends on payment. They've already, I, I, I listened to another sports caster say that they've already got him penciled in. They've got Rendon penciled in in Texas, Texas Rangers, and they've got Cole penciled in in uh, beautiful Los Angeles suburb of Anaheim, Southern California Angels. So, but I would agree with you. I think if nothing else, um, follow the money bags and where the Brinks truck pulls up, um, Garrett Cole will probably be right behind it. So uh, let's move on to the next question. Let's see. This one's good too. Uh, this is John M. John M. says, Blummer, who is a current Astros player that reminds you of one of your Astros teammates in any of your tenures with the team? Reminds you with their personality, work ethic, type of teammate, etc." Good question. Altuve is probably one of the easiest ones just as far as work ethic and the way he goes out there. Uh, to Craig Biggio. Craig Biggio is one of those workhorse type guys, even uh, Jeff Bagwell to an extent, because both those guys, if you stood next to them in an airport in their street clothes, you'd probably just go, oh, who's this guy? But if you saw him in their uniform and saw the numbers that they carry with them and that put them in the Hall of Fame, then you're all of a sudden you're going, damn, this guy maybe went above and beyond with uh, the with just the appearance that he has. And I think Altuve is one of those guys where if you saw him in the airport and didn't know who he was, you'd be like, who is this guy? And he's one of those guys that really kind of moved on and is doing heroic type things and hall of, putting up Hall of Fame type numbers. So Altuve, Biggio is a good combination. Um, you know, I, I didn't play with anybody that was, you know, Correa's type status, but uh, Miguel Tejada was an interesting guy just in the sense like George Springer. He was kind of that guy in the clubhouse who kind of cheered everybody on and was highly entertaining, was never in a bad mood and loved playing the game of baseball. So as far as like spirit, and kind of that internal joy that comes out when you play the game. I think Miguel Tejada kind of compares a little bit to George Springer with me a little bit. Um, other than that, uh, you have some pretty unique personalities on the current team and the, the few Astro teams that I did play on, you know, in the early 2000s and around 2008, 9, 10. Awesome. Good answer. That one's all you. And then the next uh, question statement, this is from Michelle. She just says, love the podcast. I think y'all need a Bleacher Blums shirt that says Altuve is adorable. I don't know if I want to, <laughs> I don't know if I want to be rocking that shirt, but maybe we'll put that in the women's sizes. And then perhaps another one that says Mechanic Ball. So I like it. Those are ideas. So these aren't, these don't all have to be questions. She's rocking uh, some statements there, but I, I, you will not find me. I'm so sorry, Michelle. You will not find me wearing an Altuve is adorable shirt, but uh, you know, that's just my, <laughs> my own personal. Uh, choice. All right. Yeah. I kind of coined that. Sorry. I kind of coined that phrase just because I think he is adorable because he plays so hard and he has so much joy when he goes out there. But yeah, you know, what's great is the fans have been, done such a good job and encouraged us in the, you know, on the t-shirt business, hat business type side that I really think that Tuttle and I are going to have a conversation here moving forward now that the season's over to maybe kind of give a little bit more back to the fans out there who uh, desire some of those things. So I appreciate the input. Yep. Agreed. Hey, so the next question is from Reed F. Now, I don't know if we want to go too deep into this, but uh, 
It seems more common this season for infielders to range further into the outfield than ever before and even call outfielders off of the ball. Do you have any insight into why this might be happening? I'm watching game six right now, and twice so far, Reddick has been right next to an infielder who caught the ball deep in the outfield. Um, I, I, obviously, the, sh the short answer is this has a lot to do with shifts and uh, and positioning regards to um, you know uh, pre-pitch positioning, I guess is the best way to say it. But um, you probably have a little more uh, in-depth insight there. No, I think you're right, Tuttle. It has everything to do with the analytics and the shifts. So when you create a shift to the pull side, uh, for a left-handed hitter, it moves Altuve into shallow right field. And I think the the reason you don't see that on the other side of the field is because if you move the shortstop, we've actually seen Carlos Correa move into shallow left field against Albert Pujols, but it's because he has a half an hour to throw to first base, so you can play a little bit further away from first base to create the time to throw it across the diamond. So the reason it's not with a right-handed hitter up, the shortstop doesn't play in shallow left, is because it's such a far throw and the timing of the play, but in right field, you can move Altuve into shallow right field and move the second baseman closer to that outfielder because the throw becomes a little bit shorter. It's a little bit easier to get there. You're trying to increase as much range as you got. And when you increase range by moving into the outfield, it creates the opportunity for the right fielder and second baseman to be in the same spot on a fly ball. Maybe that would normally be caught in, you know, 2005 by uh, the right fielder. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I got one more point that I've totally forgot. Athletes, and this is one thing I, I, I try and bring up as much as I can, athletes in this game nowadays are unbelievable. So these guys are stronger, faster, more range, more athleticism. And that kind of goes into play too. Yeah, but the one thing that stands out in this conversation is that, you know, for years and years and years, we've been kind of conditioned to play our nine positions. And, you know, the 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 not the conditioning, but the practice is the out, the infielder running out full speed, the outfielder running in, the outfielder always goes low, the infielder stays high, like all of those things that they've worked on. Uh, I haven't seen it happen, but it changes the dynamic a little bit. I mean, you really have to work those situations because guys are in different positions on each hitter. It's not like, oh, he was playing second base and he's playing right field and I got to stay high and the, the outfielder slide low. I think, you know, hopefully it doesn't, take too long to get used to that but that's kind of another dynamic in there right with the with the actual way they're conditioned and what they practice because these guys are kind of in different positions you have to remember oh yeah Correa is playing right behind the second base bag he's not playing deep in the hole oh he might get here and and you know we see a little bit like you said maybe more outfield coverage the athletes are better and faster but I'm looking for you know there's also the opportunity for a few more miscommunications or a few more misunderstandings because of what these guys were conditioned to do prior. Yeah, and the game has changed in the sense too, where that actually, I've you know obviously been to spring training several times where these guys will actually take ground balls in the shift position and they'll go through situations where there is a shallow pop fly so they can create the communication and be able to do that. But, it, you know, it's great having you on here, Tull, because, you know, that's one of those, un, it's not an unwritten rule, but it's definitely one of the unspoken things where the outfielder goes low and the infielder goes high. Because if you're running backwards, it's hard to judge when to get down, whereas the outfielder has a visual on the player and the baseball, so they know when to slide. And uh, that's one of those unspoken things between infield outfield is when you're making that play, 
much like center field, right fielder, you know, the center fielder may cut in front, whereas the corner outfielder may cut behind. So they create, they get away from the collision. So when an out, an infielder is going out and an outfielder is coming in, it's usually what Tuttle's talking about, where the, the infielder will stay on his feet and it's on the outfielder to slide and maybe go, go a little bit lower so that the contact is a little bit less than just uh, two, two trains colliding right there. Great point. Thank you. Glad I bring something to the podcast. Um, the next, there's two about free agency, two questions. I'll read them both, but we may cover some of it. I just want to get these all read. We have about three or four more. Um, this one's pretty in depth, but I think we can touch on it. This is from Landy A. Landy's uh, written in before. Uh, according to SpotTrack.com, Astros have 18 players signed with an estimated payroll already over $200 million for 2020. Those 18 players have to get to 40 players before next spring, and Jim Crane has stated that he doesn't want to go over the luxury tax threshold. Somebody's been doing their homework, not just spot track. It seems like there may be some tough cuts trades coming soon to hometown favorites like Reddick, Springer, and Correa. Can y'all put on your GM hat and give us a couple of realistic scenarios of what the Astros could do? Now, let me just preface this by saying there's innumerable. I heard somebody throw out a trade Correa for um, like a bunch of prospects and sign Rendon and put Rendon at third and put Bregman back at short. Like, you know, I mean, I've heard all kinds of things already. So there's a ton of scenarios, but obviously this person, Landy, is speaking more about kind of the guys that have been the core of the team, right? A guy like Reddick, a guy like Springer and Correa. So I'm sure you do have some thoughts on that. Um, of course. And I love that Landy is going to spotrack.com because that's where I go for most of my contracts. They do a very good job of explaining where the money is, you know, which guys are taking up a percentage of the money. And they do a good job of prognosticating what that payroll is going to be. And I actually looked at it too. It's, it's supposedly at 208 million for the 2020 season. So Landy is right in the sense that they may have to try and cut payroll in certain places. And the obvious thing is to go to some of those higher payroll guys, which could be Springer who has one more year on his contract, a Redick who has one more year on his contract. Correa is going to be up for arbitration. We don't know what the number is going to be on him, but they do a very good job in predicting what that number might be. And they might go a little bit high on it just to kind of protect themselves. And if it is lower, but yes, there are opportunities for trades. I've heard the same thing. The rumors are going to, uh, nothing is going to shock me in the next two, three months as far as speculation on who could stay, who could go, how do they get the money there? How do, how do they do that? And one of the things I want to point out, and I don't want to get too in depth because we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about it because this podcast is going to be lengthy to say the least, is you've got two guys in Granke and Verlander who are going to make, I believe, close to, I'd have to look the numbers up again, but I think close to $57 million this season or, or 2020 and 2021. So in two years, those numbers will be off the books. So you're going to lose close to $60 million in the, you know, in the next two, three years. So, I mean, that's, you know, if you're looking further, so you'd pay that luxury tax for two more years. And then after that, you'd obviously clear a ton of payroll to move on. And obviously, you know, guys like uh, Correa and some of the other guys who are arbitration eligible may move on or they may stay here. Who knows? But yeah, th there's not much payroll flexibility. They're going to have to be creative in the off season. Yeah. Uh, I think the Astros fans would just want to, Cut Will Harris and Joe Smith and Osuna, you know, the bullpen that let, no, I'm kidding. And I, and I really am joking. I mean, like to blame those guys is ridiculous. 
Um, anyway, so a lot of, lot of moves. And as you said, that's kind of what the hot stove is for, right? I mean, the hot stove is all about rumor, innuendo, and possibilities to stay over the threshold <laughs> or under the threshold of the luxury tax, all kinds of things coming. Yeah, and, and a lot of credit to Landy, too, for doing the research. You know, hopefully we kind of steer you in the direction where it sparks a thought. Go ahead and get on the Internet. Find that thing out. Do the investigation because there's plenty of information out there. But uh, Spotrac, S-P-O-T-R-A-C.com has been a great one for me. They've got a great podcast, too. It helps you out for uh, a lot of the business side of NFL, NBA, and a lot of those sports. Yeah. So this is a uh, we're we're coming to the end here, but uh, this is Kenny No Face Punch G um, has a couple questions. He said this is time. <laughs> Thank you for timeless, clarifying. Timeless questions. That's right. Timeless questions for any podcast. To Blummer, what in the world was it like to play for Ozzy Guillen? Uh, Tuttle, it never occurred to anyone to refer to you as King Tut. My whole life, I have been referred to as King Tut, so I don't know. Maybe I haven't clarified that. And then this is really the question, So, I'll, and I'll, I'll reiterate when it comes to your turn. Management styles. I play sports in Texas. Every practice felt like a boot camp scene from Full Metal Jacket. I heard that California-style coaching is more about positive reinforcement. Any thoughts on advantages, disadvantages, which is more effective, et cetera? Hope you fellows keep it up during the offseason. Baseball education is the best part of the podcast during the game broadcast, there isn't much time to teach. So I think that's far, fairly accurate. So let's just go with what in the world was it like to play for Ozzie Guillen and start with that. I I loved it. You know, I, there was really no cut and dry. You know, he's crazy, but he's crazy like a fox. I think he knew what he was doing. He knew how to manage a game. He knew how to motivate guys, but he was he was a guy who literally had a team meeting because I think we were getting a little bit frustrated halfway through the season. And he finally just sat everybody in the clubhouse down and said, look, if, if you're going to, if you're going to suck that day, guess what? I'm going to tell everybody in the media, you suck. He goes, if the next day you show up and go four for four and win the game and you play your best, guess what? I'm going to tell the media you're the best. So a lot of it, he put on us. He goes, if you had a bad day, you got to call it a bad day. If you had a good day, we're going to call it a good day. And I think that's what the beauty of Ozzie Guillen, as far as players were concerned, is you kind of knew what you were going to get. If you played like crap, you were going to get crap in return. If you played great, you were going to get greatness in return. And I appreciated that. And Ozzie Guillen, as good as he was as a player, still understood how hard the game is. And I think that's where some of these managers are doing a good job because they still understand how hard the game is on a daily basis. And I think that actually creates a good avenue between the analytics and the field is having a guy who understands how hard it is so he can go tell the computer guys, it's not that easy. This guy hasn't slept in two days because he's got a newborn. This guy is having, you know, marital issues. This guy had indigestion because he had too many jalapenos. I don't know. But you need to know the humanity of the whole thing. And I think that's where managers do a good job. And Ozzy was one of those guys. But uh, he was highly encourageable. And uh, you know, it's interesting for me because I had experience with Ozzy to begin with. I played against him. That's how long I've played. And then uh, he was also my third base coach in Montreal uh, under Jeff Torborg. So I knew the personality. I had the relationship moving forward. So, and even to this day, you know, a lot of people they find it hard to believe. And maybe people listening to this right now find it hard to believe. But I still have a very personal relationship with Ozzy Guillen and his family. They have been phenomenal to me. And uh, I have been phenomenal to them in return. It's been a phenomenal relationship. And I do believe, mark my words right here in episode 44, I think we're on, 
that uh, Ozzie Guillen will be a manager of a big league team, if not on the coaching staff, relatively soon. Oh, how about that? You heard it here first, folks, on the Bleacher Blums podcast. Let me uh, take the management styles. We'll go through that, and then there's one more question. The management styles is funny. I mean, I lived on the East Coast. I lived on the West Coast. Uh, so forget the sports aspect for a second. He says he plays sports in Texas. Um, East Coast, you go out to dinner, you wear nice shoes, slacks, sometimes a tie and a dress shirt. California, if you're going out nice, you got to put on jeans and your best flip-flops. And, you know, you probably won't wear a T-shirt. You'll wear a short sleeve button-up. So, I mean, just in general, and you know this, you're laughing, but in general, that there, there are different kind of styles to the coast. I will say for me, my experience was it depended on the sport and actually the sex, male, female. So if I played football, that my football practice in California, I promise you, in high school, we were, we were a good football team. It was run like a military camp. I mean, we ran, you know, gassers at the end of practice when we didn't do well, helmets, pads, the whole deal. We got yelled at when you would, you know, false start. We got screamed at, like grabbed by the face mask, the whole like, that's how football coaches are. You do it right or you're going to sit on the bench and they yell at you. And I think to me, it has a lot more to do with the difference in sports um, with the, you know, the, the, the management styles more than it has to do with the type of, uh, I guess, the region you're living in. So football coaches get, a lot, uh, get away with a lot more in terms of yelling and screaming and demanding. Whereas, as you just mentioned with Ozzie Gee, and I think it relates well, I mean, a guy who played the game that has the analytics but understands how hard the game is or how hard you're working and he has some personal insight. Um, and, and then I also think it has to do with the level. When you're in high school, you can get yelled at. I mean, my wide receivers coach in high school was a parole officer during the day. If you thought he was like this nice, warm guy, you were in the wrong business. But your baseball coach is a little more like, you know, hitting a fungo and getting this and, you know. But when you get to the professional level or the college scholarship level, the expectations go up. So what they expect you to do, that increases, but also you're more independent, right? Because you're going from a 15 or 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid to being a 19, 20, 21-year-old man. And I think all of that stuff probably factors more into you know, the style of management, the style of coaching, then, you know, where you live, but that's just my take on it. You know, what do I know? You know enough to be on our podcast. That's why I'm calling you up every week to get on this thing. Cause you got good input, dude. Don't ever sell yourself short. Uh, but, right. uh, I'm a tremendous slouch. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I think it, it, it's generational too, for me, because I know that I, you know, you and I are very similar in age. And I think we grew up in an age where it was still, you know, bust your ass. If you don't, we're going to run it. We call them cowboys. We had to run cowboys in basketball back and forth on the court. You know, if we missed a layup or we missed a pass or we didn't run a drill right or execute the offense the way the coach wanted to. And even in baseball, when I got to Cal, you know, Bob Milano, I absolutely adore this man because he didn't put up with anything and he expected the best from you every day. The one place that you could get as close to perfection on a baseball field was in practice, and he wanted that. And I think that's what made him great, and that's what helped me achieve as much as I did because you know I understood that there was more in the tank, and I think that's where the coaches need to step in and not necessarily be derogatory, but try and find a way to encourage you to do your best. And if it means discipline, then it means discipline. But I think things, you know, to to the point of the question, I think here in recent days, uh, I think California has become a little bit softer as a state to say the least, but I think that, you know, the coaches are 
coaches are expected to be a little more trophy for everybody type situation or, hey, Johnny, you're doing a great job, even though you flubbed that ball and can't throw it to first base, you know. Um, but uh, you're right. I think it's generational and I think it's level oriented too. the further up you go. Obviously, the expectation has to rise. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and you know, California, we don't want to get make this political. But yes, we're we're a very liberal state with kind of liberal beliefs. And I'm saying that as a totality um, based on who we elect and all that. So, I mean, maybe that trickles down into the coaching circles, the trophy for everybody. But we know how trophies for everybody works in the real world. So uh, we can we can bring that up another time. Last question. And I think this will lead us into kind of the crux of the podcast anyway. Michael iMover9000 says, I am pissed. Please explain AJ Hinch taking out Zach Granke after he'd pitched possibly the best game of his career and as an Astro for anyone other than Garrett Cole with a one-run lead. Zach made one mistake. Please talk me off the ledge because I'm about to jump. <laughs> We're three days late from talking him off the ledge. <laughs> yeah, hopefully he's still around. <laughs> I, hope he did. I, hope he's, I hope he's around to listen to, this, to, to us read his question. Such a shame to throw away a great season. Well, I mean, that's that's more of a, an opinion than a question, and maybe we can tackle that as we move forward. Would you like to do that? Yeah, I think uh, we can. We should move forward on that. But, uh, you know, at the same time, as much as Tuttle and I are, you know, that's our job is to kind of, you know, bring some of the sanity back and take the fanaticism out of the fan and, and, and understand how grateful we should be. But at the same time, be pissed. It's okay. The initial reaction for me was, damn it, you know, we missed an opportunity because I felt the same way about some of the pitching moves that were going on. And we've had a couple of days to get a little more information. And I'm kind of glad that we're doing this podcast on Friday because we had the immediate reaction from fans. We had the immediate reaction from players. We had the immediate reaction from media and coaches. And then today, Friday, you know, reading up on Julia Morales's uh, Twitter feed that they had another press conference today with Jeff Luno and AJ Hinch, and we got a little more information. So yes, we are going to tackle that in the next section that we go through talking about the World Series. But I, I want to encourage everybody, be pissed, but also understand why you're pissed, but also understand why you shouldn't be pissed, because there's there's too much good to to linger on the one bad, I guess is what I'm trying to say, if that makes any sense. It makes sense to me. And, and I will say this, that... Uh that we're like part of the 12 step program. So listen to bleacher blums all off season and, you know, maybe we're on step two or three, but there's certainly an advantage to giving it a couple of days here before we got on here and started up, uh, you know, tearing off the scab, I guess, for lack of a better word. So we'll use the, uh, the suggestions in the mailbag for Altuve is adorable and, um, and McCannon ball shirts to tell you that if we end up making those shirts, you got to go to crushcitytees.com. T-E-E-S dot com that we all know if you listen to this podcast, it's the place to go for H-Town baseball tees. They're direct to garment machine. They make your idea a reality with no minimums, no setup fees and unlimited colors. They also provide embroidery, screen printing, design and printed right here in Houston or right there in Houston as the case may be with me. And of course, they are the exclusive provider of the Bleacher Blums t-shirts. We have Bleacher Blums t-shirts. I'm Tingly t-shirts, GFC t-shirts, and uh, we're going to come up with a few more ideas in the off-season. Maybe Altuve is adorable makes it. I will not be wearing one, as I pointed out, but that is uh, all provided by CrushCityTees.com. And we appreciate all the work they're putting in there, and you've got to continue to go to BleacherBlums.com to find out more about when those shirts are coming out. And obviously, you've got to follow myself 
on Twitter and Instagram. I have the same handle to keep it easy on you. It is at Blummer27 and David Tuttle has done the same thing or King Tut as we may call him moving forward. Uh, you can reach him on Twitter and Instagram at the at real David Tuttle. And we're going to move right into the World Series. And I'm not sure I wrote a question mark when I sent the notes over to David Tuttle. I didn't know if we talked about the uh, Trey Turner play at first base in game six when he was running down there because it was a it was a quote unquote, quote, uh, you know, quote unquote, interference play. And I was kind of curious why it was interference or why it wasn't, you know, uh, obstruction. Because I think the way it's said in the rule book is if the runner obstructs the throw or the lane that the player is throwing in. Because I, I truly agree with the fact that if you're running on the infield grass and the ball hits you when you're on the infield grass, you're out. That makes sense to me. I get that. You try and run, a, if you're running down first base, you try and run on the chalk line. I, I played for 14 years and I never tried to run in that 45-foot box that everybody's been talking about since this play has happened. I think it's idiotic. I think it's stupid because everybody knows the quickest way to the base is point A to point B is a straight line. So you try and find that straight line. And there were times I felt that I was running on the infield grass, but I, I got back to the, uh, the, the baseline as soon as I could, but I didn't think about getting in that box for crying out loud. And the reason I didn't think about getting in that box and why this I believe is counterintuitive is because that running lane that they want you to run in or the rule book says you should run in is in foul territory for God's sakes. Guess where the base is? The base is in fair territory. So that's just dumb to me. You're encouraging a guy to basically run a you know banana hook to first base. It's dumb. So I don't think the base should move. I don't think that the 45 foot lane should move. I think it's more eye candy than anything else. But I do believe, uh, you know, the cutout that uh, is usually in baseball fields, I think once you get past that cut, that's where you have to be a little more on the baseline. And I think that's where it comes into play because I think once Trey Turner had his foot on the bag, the ball hit him in the ass. And when his foot is on the bag, guess who takes precedent? He is now a base runner on the base pass. He is, a, he is officially on the base pass. So if that ball hits him in the ass after he hits the base, it's not his fault. It's a bad throw. And I didn't understand that interpretation. And there was actually a play, I believe, in the 96 uh, playoffs with Chuck Knobloch. You'll remember where he kind of stands there pointing at the runner. It was a similar situation, and it went the way of the base runner. So I think that needs to be cleared up. But for me, it's, it's stupid to think that I'm going to run from the inside to the outside to the inside. And I hope that kind of clarifies how I feel about it. I thought it was a bad call, even though it went the Astros way. There does need to be an adjustment. But how do you feel about it, Tuttle? You nailed it. I, I think what's funny, folks, you heard it here first. The first time that Blum has been critical of the Houston Astros, or no, I'm sorry, that he sided with the opposing team. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. But you're right. <laughs> so I think people, um, fans and baseball fans alike, they there's so many unwritten rules in baseball, right? They, is he going to throw at him? He pimped a home run. He carried the bat to first base, all that stuff. This is kind of another unwritten rule. And I heard an interview with an umpire, which is right. He says that 95% of the time, the base runners are never in that 45 degree cutout. And, and the interviewer <laughs> asked him, he goes, why don't they call him out? He's like, because 95% of the time, the ball gets thrown to the first baseman. He catches it and the guy's out. Like, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that we we accept because it rarely happens. But when it happens, to your point, they got to get it right. And I think, yeah, you can't expect the guy to be going inside, outside, inside, outside. I mean, we all know that'll take him much longer to get there in that point. And 
And if we're allowed to do it 95% of the time, the throw, obviously Presley's throw or, uh, uh, it wasn't Devo either. Who was, who was the pitcher? Um, uh, Peacock. Thank you. Peacock's throw carried him inside the baseline. But, uh, but I would agree with you. I mean, I think they made the wrong call and, and, you know, I mean, they, it ended up not costing the nationals, thankfully, but, uh, I think this is hard because we, we preach to our kids to be, as you said before, I'll bring this in the parental range. You want to be consistent. You want to be a, you know, how do you learn from this mistake? How do you do that? And that way in, in, you know, in a time of pressure or a time of, uh, high stress, you act accordingly because you've developed these good habits. So here, these umpires know the guys, they all run on the inside, they all run on the inside, and they kind of know that, oh gosh, on occasion, as you mentioned with Chuck Knobloch, I'm old enough to remember that as well. On occasion, something will happen, but let's get it right, because we know that this is where they run. We know this is, you know, you're not going to expect them to go back out to the cutout. So I've seen this in other sporting events, and I think what happened, honestly, because it's not reviewable to judgment call, is... People would say the umpires, you know, just keep your mouth shut and just stay over there. The crucial situation happened. The high pressure thing happened and they just panicked a little bit like, hey, uh, yeah, we got to make we got to we got to say something. We got to do something. And sometimes doing nothing is the right thing to do. And I think that that that's you know, they just they just made a mistake, to be honest with you. Yep, and it it went the Astros' way, but unfortunately, uh, I'm not sure if it was the next pitch. And it's kind of ironic that uh, you know. It, it, a home run was hit right after that by Rendon, and uh, the series played out. The, the Washington Nationals needed to win game six, but a credit to them for battling through some of the adversity you know, that was given to them by that bad call, and they moved forward and were able to get on the board and win game six to force. Here it is, to force game seven. Dun, dun, dun. And, of course, we saw how that played out. But just to give everybody a little bit of a recap, because we've already torn the scab off telling you that we're going to talk about it a little bit. But uh, I was in the stadium, and it was kind of, kind of a funny story. You know, I, I made a joke to uh, Adam Clanton, the guy I do uh, the radio with here in Houston. I said, you know what? I'm debating on whether or not I'm going to go to Game 7. And he's like, what? Why? And I said, because every game I haven't gone to in the World Series, they've won. <laughs> granted they've been on the road so obviously i didn't make the trip up to washington dc so they won three games on the road and coming back i was at game six they lose game six and i was kind of mulling around and i said oh man i don't know if i should go to game seven i'm kind of nervous i want to see what happens you know get some good views at home and i thought about tweeting during the game and i said and my wife goes you should go how often does game seven happen in the world series i said you're right and then she kind of laughed and i go what are you laughing at she goes well, I want to go too. And I said, oh, okay, that's great. Let's go, honey. And she goes, no, because Matthew McConaughey saying play ball. <laughs> so that's how I got talked into going to game seven in the hopes that my wife would be able to meet Matthew McConaughey. But even his mojo wasn't able to push the Astros past the Washington Nationals. But to set up the scenario we're about to talk about, you've got to know that the Astros were up two to nothing via Yuli Gurriel home run. Carlos Correa got an RBA base hit. And then, my gosh, man, we talked about Zach Greinke's uh, post-game interview and how we were both kind of fired up about it. And everybody I was talking about in that was talking about it in Houston, we were fired up because Greinke was kind of jokingly, you know, hey, it's a big game. Wish it was in the National League Park. It really looked like he had a great frame of mind. And to tell you what, 
he went out there and pitched his absolute ass off and really endeared himself to the Houston fans with his grittiness, his guttiness to go out there. He had a great game plan, executed it perfectly, and was about six and a third into the, into the game. And A.J. Hinch had him at about, what, 70, 80 pitches in, in, the sixth, in the seventh inning. So he had one out in the seventh inning. Rendon comes up, hits the home run, puts the Nationals on the board. It's two to one. And uh, they walk Soto, and A.J. Hinch comes out and takes, takes Granke out of the game. The controversy, I think, is around, did A.J. Hinch take him out too early, Granke, that is, too, too early? And I'm very grateful that we have a, an ex-pitcher on this podcast because the way that Tuttle's watching this game and the Tuttle's experience, he might offer a little bit better insight into this. I thought... Personally, it was a, a right time to take him out, and this is going to sound really weird because it's, a, it's in the postseason, but I thought he, he took him out on a high note, and A.J. has a tendency to do that. Just looking at styles, A.J. took him out because the worst-case scenario for Zach Greinke was a no decision. You know, if Zach stays in that game and gives up that go-ahead home run, he becomes the loser in that game. And I don't know if that would have tarnished the outing for me. I still think it would have been a phenomenal outing, even if Zach had given up the three runs to lose the game. But A.J. Hinch opted to go to the bullpen, and he said Will Harris was the guy. And I'm going to let you answer the question of Zach Greinke. Did he come out early, or should they have left him in? You know, this is where I go by feel in analytics. This is a great combination. If you say before the game, right, this is how we do all these things. If Greinke gives me five scoreless innings, Am I happy? And every single Astros fan is like, yep, five scoreless. So every out after that is bonus. And to your point, why would you want to ruin Granky's? I mean, now he's into the seventh inning, right? He's into the seventh inning. He hasn't given up a run. And you keep in mind, you had to cover eight outs. I mean, think about that. That's right. Like Tuttle is saying, which is a phenomenal point. He gave us actually four more outs than I think they were anticipating. Yeah, and, and and I think the walk was the right time to take him out. He could have taken him out after the home run if he wanted, but either of those situations, those scenarios are fine. The other thing I want to say, well, I have a couple points on this, as you know, but uh, if we're going to give Will Harris and Joe Smith all the credit, like, where do these guys come from? These guys are outstanding. Like, these, they're just the guys that A.J. Hinch trusts, the guys that he goes to in those situations. Then giving up a line drive to the opposite field that nicks the foul pole that's a pretty good pitch, you know? I, I mean, I think it's really hard to crush those guys. The other thing, and this is the frustration I think that the fans are feeling, so I do want to address it, is, you know, I think, like you said, you got four more outs out of Granky. Like, you got to take him out. It's a high note. You want all of that to work itself out. But, you know, being the Giants fan I am, I've got to bring the Giants into this. I'm looking at the Bumgarner-Bochi situation and then the Cole-AJ Hinch situation. I mean, if you're laying it on the line and your life depends on it, who do you want to come into that game and, and ride it out? And now we can we could probably debate the entire offseason whether, all right, so they get out of that inning, it's three to two. That was a long inning, now it's three to two. Why not bring in Cole now to keep it there? I mean, you there had to be some desperation. We talked about this a few podcasts ago. You have to manage a little bit differently in terms of, I mean, just those last, as you said, those last eight outs, those last seven outs, those last six outs, you know, maybe they tie it up because once it got to five to two, and then obviously once it got to seven to two, it's, you know, I mean, you're deflated. It goes down, um, you know, it's 
the game is not uh, reachable at that point, especially with what you have left in your arsenal. And I think that's the that's what the fans want to hear, and that's a subtlety. Now, me implementing that is a little bit different, right? So I just think Bumgarner told Bochi he was ready to come in, and he pitched five scoreless innings in relief two days after he had pitched a game. Um, Garrett Cole does not care that he pitched two days before. He doesn't care that he's never had a relief appearance in the big leagues. He wanted to be in that game, and I'm not going to second guess and say he shouldn't have. He should have been in the game ahead of Will Harris, but I might second guess the fact that Garrett Cole should have pitched in Game Seven to keep the Astros alive and keep them in the uh, in the realm of you know a comeback uh, a comeback opportunity. I think. Wow, yeah, that's a lot to digest right there because you are correct. Garrett Cole went out there in the fifth inning, got loose. And some of the quotes that we are hearing is that they did have a game plan going into this, but in hearing some of the quotes, I'm going to play a little bit of AJ's sound in a little bit, but I want to talk about the fact of what actually happened. Will Harris came in the game to pitch to Howie Kendrick. And just to give you an idea of how rare that act that at bat actually was and how fortunate the Washington Nationals actually were. I mean, outside of the fact that the hit probability on a ball hit at that height and that speed was minimal to begin with. How about since then, this is according to Bill Petty uh, on Twitter, who's doing a lot of uh, analytics and a lot of research into this since 2008, which is the StatCast era where they were able to track some of these pitches and uh, hit probabilities and things like that. Since 2008, and keep in mind, this was a cut fastball down and away, ideally located on that outer edge, painted down and away. Similar pitches to right-handed hitters have resulted in swings only 26% of the time. Swings, just 26% of the time, they're even offering at that and trying to swing at it. Out of that 26%, three times there has been a home run hit. And in 2019, Howie Kendrick saw 51 pitches low and away in that quadrant. He had five singles and 51 pitches. That was the first home run he hit off that pitch. But the thing that kind of stuck out to me is the, uh, the comments post-game by Howie Kendrick where he said, he basically said, I was looking out there. He goes, I knew he was going to go away from me. I knew he had the cut fastball. He had already swung and missed at the breaking ball. But he was looking on that outer edge. So I give Howie Kendrick a lot of, a lot of credit for adjusting. And Harris faced 17 batters. And I'm kind of curious, Tuttle, when you're facing a team in a playoff series type situation where you have the potential for seven games, it opens yourself to be scrutinized a little bit more, familiarity, and that will breed contempt. So Harris faced 17 batters in the World Series. Eight of them are right-handed hitters. And obviously this day and age with the video, the technology, the tendencies, the analytics, all the information that's available, Howie Kendrick probably had a very good idea that if he was going to get a fastball in that and that at bat, it was going to be on the outer third. So Harris in the World Series faced eight right-handed hitters, uh, 17 total, and gave up two earned runs, both on home runs, both to right-handed hitters. Kind of an interesting stat and some of the numbers behind that, but I give Howie, Howie Kendrick a lot of credit for hitting a bastard pitch out the other way. And it was just bad luck that it didn't just move a little bit to the right, past the pole, or actually hit off the wall and keep him from being that go-ahead run. I agree. I mean, I, I love the, the spot track stuff. We're talking about the statistics, the analytics. I mean, that part's interesting, but 
it just blows my mind. They're like, all right, there's a 22% chance that if a pitch is in this quadrant and Howie Kendrick's at bat and, you know, Will Harris is on the mound and, you know, it's kind of like, all right. I mean, that's why we do play the game. It was, it was statistically obviously um, not what was expected to happen, but we kind of touched on the team of destiny thing early on. And I think that the nationals certainly had a lot of momentum and certainly had a lot of things going their way. And if that was, if that was going to happen, that, that was the inning they had to make it happen. And I think, you know, I think the funny thing about having all this video and this exposure and pitch tipping and all that stuff is you still got to go out and make it happen. As Rendon said, you got to take this maple bat and you got to take that ball and you got to hit it right here. And it's not that easy to do, but you want to be as prepared as possible. And uh, JV said it in an interview, in a seven-game series, you're going to need all 25 guys in the lineup. And I think, as you mentioned, 17 hitters in a seven-game series, it's nice to kind of keep the, those guys you know, maybe hidden down there and less exposed. And I think that's why velocity still wins out in baseball because very often, you know, you can come in a game and if you're throwing 98, 99, it doesn't matter what the exposure is. You can get away with a lot more mistakes and you can get away with a lot more, um, a lot more at bats with guys. Cause they can go, Oh yeah, we saw this guy last night. You know, he was throwing 98, 99. Okay. Good luck. And, and I think that's the subtle difference or the, the slight difference facing a guy like Will Harris, who throws a lot of stuff that moves, but, you know, he's in the 92, 93 range. And I think that's a little bit different for guys to kind of get a, a visual on and the ability to, to probably feel comfortable in that box. And I think that's, that's why everybody's looking for that lights out guy that throws 100. Because, I mean, I, I look at Rainey, who did not pitch well for the Nationals. That dude, I, I want him on my staff. I mean, he's his breaking ball is nasty, and he throws a hundred. You'll take your chances with a guy like that, and uh, and you know it. It just wasn't, it just wasn't Will Harris's or the Astros' night. But I, I you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that they did everything wrong, and and AJ did everything wrong. I think it would have been great. I think he took Granky out at the right time. I think it would have been nice for the Astros fans even if it's three to two to go out in the eighth inning or let's see, was that sixth, seventh inning to go out in the eighth inning and have Garrett Cole start that inning. That's a, that's a great point. And I want to get into that decision by AJ Hinch. And I'm going to play a little bit of sound right now, just a brief sound bite, maybe about a minute long AJ talking about that situation after game seven. You know, it, it was in the seventh inning and, and he was getting up into the eighties. We asked him to do more today than he had done and pitch deeper into the game more than he had done in the entire, uh, in the entire month of October. So, I wanted to take him out in any or a, a batter too early rather than a batter too late. And, it, you know, Kendrick and, and Cabrera was where I um, had really focused on Will Harris at that point. Will's been tremendous for us. I knew I had Osuna. I knew I had, um, you know, Garrett if need be. And so um, Will coming in to spin the breaking ball, he got the swing and miss, and then he hit a ball off the foul pole in right field, and, um, and off they go. So I wasn't going to pitch him unless we, we were going to win the World Series and have a lead. I mean, to have, he was going to help us win. I didn't want him. He he was um, available, and and I felt it was a, a game that he was going to come in um, had we tied it or taken the lead. He was going to close the game in the ninth after I brought him soon in had we kept the lead. So that was A.J. Hinch giving us an idea of what the mentality of, of Garrett Cole and himself were. They had it already mapped out. And I kind of had this idea in my head because if you watch enough of A.J. Hinch and you watch the way he brings guys in, there's certain pitchers that he will not bring in 
when there's traffic on, on the base paths. He will bring them in in what he likes to call a clean inning, which basically means he wants to, them to start the inning. And that was obviously the idea with Garrett Cole. And it was interesting to hear him say when they were leading, because at the moment they were leading the game, and obviously that was an incredibly high leverage situation. So he went to Will Harris, who was a guy who is used to pitching in those situations, left a lot of inherited runners on base throughout the course of the season. But I also thought it was interesting how Osuna comes into the mix where you might have used Osuna to keep the game where it's at and then finish it off with Garrett Cole. So that, for me, kind of opened up the question, you know, what – and again, you've got to remember, we were in the seventh inning with one out. So it told you that you only had eight outs to cover. And if you're going to use Osuna to set up Garrett Cole to finish the ninth inning off, that kind of that knocks three outs off those eight and creates five innings. And we've seen Osuna go out and get five innings. So five outs. What kind of the question? Five outs. Not five innings. So that kind of raises. Yeah, sorry, five in, five outs, not five innings. That's pretty excessive. But uh, you know, Osuna would Osuna have been an, a better option in that situation to go out and get Howie Kendrick as opposed to Will Harris because. You did have the lead two to one. You did have a very good right-handed hitter up there. Will Harris has great numbers against right-handed hitters. But, you know, to Tuttle's point, Osuna brings the velocity, and he has gone extended outings to get five outs to give Garrett Cole the last three outs of the of the game. And that might be where I get a little like, mm, was Will Harris the best option in that situation if – your, your mentality is what you just said it was. Well, we should find some sound bites from our podcast because my memory is getting better and better. But you talked about Will Harris being the best reliever the Astros had without lights out stuff. And so he would never be the closer. I think maybe 10 podcasts ago, we talked about Osuna getting his mind right and being the closer. He had blown a couple saves. And you said, you know, Will Harris is there, but he's never going to be the closer. And that's a true statement. A, a, I should say a true statement there never was, right? A truer statement there never was. And and I think that is, that's really the crux of the discussion. And that's, that's where I disagree with AJ or disagree with the focus because it is a short series, seven game series versus 162 game season. They know the same things that we know. I mean, maybe they know a hell of a lot more than we do in terms of the analytics. Will Harris is not your closer. He's got funky stuff. Uh, Joe Smith, same thing, a little funky, a little weird. You know, they spot the ball well. They can get you out of tough situations with specific hitters. But I think, again, I'm going to keep using the Bumgarner situation or the fact that Strasburg and Scherzer, Scherzer came in uh, relief against the Dodgers and punched out three guys on 14 pitches. Like, what's wrong with bringing in Osuna there to get out of the inning, throwing 98 miles an hour, and then following that up with Cole? Now you're in a 2-1 game, even if Osuna gives up a run. He probably doesn't give up a home run, but even if he does, it's now three to two. A three-two ball game with Daniel Hudson in the game, uh, who they they actually hit. He was the guy they hit. Doolittle kind of they kept on the shelf, but I I would have much rather seen Hudson. You know, from an Astros perspective, Daniel Hudson's great, and he did really well with the Nationals this year. I'm not slighting him. I'm saying if I'm the Astros and it does get to three to two. I want to see Daniel Hudson coming in with all the pressure and all the, you know, the gamesmanship, all that stuff on, on his shoulders in a three to two game, not a seven to two game. Yep. And that, that's uh those are some pretty good thoughts. And I agree with you in the sense that, uh, you know, 
that in game seven, you kind of wash away the last 180 games you played. You're playing for the moment. You're playing for the lead. And granted, it was all on the offense for me. We can argue as much as we want about A.J. Hinch making a pitching move, not going to a certain guy. But at the same time, you have to look at the offense. We have talked so much about pitching because so many of these situations have been high leverage, but there were opportunities to create a blowout type situation for the Houston Astros in their losses. So let's dig into the numbers again. I know this might be a little boring for some of you, but I just want to break down some of the uh, risk numbers that uh, we talk about constantly. And again, for me, I'm just talking about hitting with runners in scoring position because for me, that is a clutch stat. If you're able to drive in runs, you are clutch because what you're doing is enhancing the opportunity for your team to score more runs than the other. And we obviously uh, magnified that in the World Series and the postseason for the Astros. So just some numbers for the Houston Astros on the season. They are a 268 team batting average wise with runners in scoring position for the season. That was middle of the road, nothing exciting. 2017, obviously much better. They were a top five team as far as risk batting average. In the World Series, they were 15 for 57, which ironically enough overall is a 263 batting average. So they were right on par with who they are. The issue is in wins and losses. In the wins, this is an incredible number. Three road games. The Astros, 11 for 28. That is a 392 batting average. At home, in the four losses, four for 29. That is a 137 batting average with runners in scoring position. Absolutely anemic, absolutely terrible, and deserves a lot of blame. You can, you can argue A.J. Hinch made a, made a bad move. You can argue that A.J. Hinch did this. But it, for me, personally, it comes down to the offense. Because if there were two or three more hits in, in each game, if there were one or two more hits in each game, this might be a different World Series, and it might have ended a little bit sooner because they were able to push these runners across. But through seven innings in Game 7, I tweeted it out. 10 runners left on. And when you're seeing that many guys left on and you're not getting the hits, every run you give up basically feels like a three-pointer. There's three runs coming across. So when those, those three runs came across for the Nationals in that seventh inning, it felt like nine runs. And that's how it had to feel for the Houston Astros going in. Um, overall, the offense for the Houston Astros at Minute Maid Park in the World Series, 241 batting average, five home runs, 700 OPS, and in Washington, 312, six home runs, 913 OPS. Do, did we give enough attention to the offense getting uh, a lot of the responsibility for these losses? I'm not sure. I, I will say this, two things. Do you remember the pitchers that you guys faced in Minute Maid Park from the Nationals? I think there's a, a Scherzer guy, Strasburg, that guy <laughs> right? too. Right. So most if you flip it, right, that's what people would say. Well, gosh, you were anemic. Yeah, well, look, look at the guys we were facing. So I'm not going to give that all the credit to me. And I'm just going to boil it down to game seven. Obviously, this happened throughout the World Series. Um, I don't know if you texted me or tweeted me. I didn't know you were at the game, but I think you sent me a quick video of uh, somebody hit the double right behind uh, Springer. Springer's on third. It's second and third. It's two to nothing already in the fourth inning. I think it was Carlos. Yeah. Was it Carlos Correa? Yeah, possibly Correa. That's right. So, but it's that mm -hmm. for me was the inning. That's where the game was won and lost. It was second and third. I think one out. Scherzer's on the mound. It's already two to nothing. You needed to get a hit there. No, you're right. It was when Altuve came up. He went through Altuve and Brantley to get out of that inning. You're right. That was not Carlos Correa because I think Reddick got on and then Springer hit the double. Yes, you're right. That yep. the meat Sorry. of their order, the guys that need to get it done. 
It's our, and it was already two nothing. Gurriel had hit a home run, and like you said, it was already two nothing. Second and third, one out. He punched out Altuve in three or four pitches, and all of a sudden now there's two outs. And then Brantley hit a screamer. That's the one that Soto caught off his shoelaces. If that ball bounces on the turf, that's a four nothing game. Mm-hmm. That's the difference in the World Series. When you know, I hate to be that guy, right? Oh, you call a timeout here versus a timeout there, but that changed the game, and that was your point. So again. Just in the Astros' defense, you're facing Scherzer and Strasburg in Minute Maid Park. So at home, on the road, all right, you're facing their best stuff, which is like facing Verlander and Cole at the Astros. But honestly, you know, we all say this. It's a game of inches, a game of momentum. I mean, tell me you're not a team of destiny when Soto kind of misjudges that ball and catches it right off the turf. If that thing bounces, that's two more runs. It's 4 nothing, and I think the game goes a different way. So, I mean, all that being said, it turned out the way it turned out. Yeah, and you know it's great that you do bring that up because the pitching is very good that they were facing at Minute Maid Park. And on the other hand, the Washington Nationals did a phenomenal job in beating Cole once, Verlander twice, and being able to fight back against Zach Greinke and the bullpen of the Houston Astros to win Game Seven. Um, just some other note, uh, some other numbers that are interesting to me: Astros pitching at home in this uh, World Series, six point seven ERA at Minute Maid Park. The OPS was eight eight four. They gave up ten home runs in four in four games at home. The batting average against was two eighty five. And then, please explain this to me, Tuttle. They go to Washington. The ERA one. It was a one ERA. Three games, three runs. Uh, the uh, OPS five twenty four in Washington. Gave up one home run in the batting average against them in Washington one seventy five. Huh. That just means Urquidy should be the number one starter next year. Let's move Verlander, move <laughs> Verlander into like the three spot. No, you know, I mean, when you we've said this ad nauseum, when you're in a seven game series, you know, these numbers kind of stand out, and uh, some of them are a little more glaring than others. I will just say, it was a great World Series. There are a lot of variables involved, a lot of factors involved, and in all honesty, I mean, based on what you just read about the. Uh, Astros pitching at Minute Maid Park with a 6 ERA or a 6.75 and 2.85 batting average against, and the OPS was 8.84. I mean, maybe we could just say the Astros pitching didn't hold it together at home when they spent all year, you know, trying to have home field advantage because a two nothing lead, if you're pitching well, you know, might be able to hold up typically. But uh, again, I don't want to take anything away from the Nationals because I think in this case they were kind of the team with the momentum and a team of destiny, and we did see that. Uh, no home team won in the entire seven-game series, and that is just something that is – I don't know if we'll ever see that again. Yeah, because we haven't seen it up until this point. They definitely shook the world by just absolutely abusing that the fact that home field advantage didn't mean anything because the splits were so drastic that the first team in sports history to win every road game to go out there and win a championship. Uh, and it's still crazy to me that uh, – Washington, D.C. is going to be celebrating this World Series, yet they have not seen a World Series game one in their home stadium. So that's kind of unique in itself. And what was unique were some of the co- uh, post-game comments by one Garrett Cole. So we give a lot of credit to the Washington Nationals. Congratulations to them. There is now only one organization in baseball that has not made it to the World Series. It is the Seattle Mariners. They're in the American League West, and it may be a long time before they ever sniff the playoffs, let alone a World Series. So good luck to them. But the Washington Nationals nailed it, played played hot baseball to Tuttle's point, 
played destiny type baseball to get to the World Series and eventually took home the crown. And a lot of credit to the Astros for getting to their second World Series appearance in three years. But the controversy now goes to the postseason and maybe some of the post-game comments in Game 7. And I'm going to play you a little soundbite of Garrett Cole after Game 7. Did you expect to get the game today? Uh, if we were winning, yes. Went for a safe no uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it would have depended on how he used um, his other guys. That was decided ahead of time. Did you say, what was your input? Hey, I'll be ready at any point, or did you say, well? Well, we just went over the game plan, and he uh, uh, laid out uh, the most advantageous times uh, to use me, and um, we didn't get to that position. How gut-wrenching is this? That's not fun. Garrett, what will you take away from the two years you spent here, just kind of looking back at your entire Astros tenure? Yeah, a lot of good friendships. Um, you know, uh, obviously um, learned a lot about pitching from my teammates, from the pitching uh, coaches and pitching staff. Um, you know, learned a lot more about the game from AJ. Um, and it was just a pleasure to play. In the city of Houston. <laughs> Not much. Garrett, when you start, at the end of every season is abrupt, but the way this one ended, them beating you guys four times here, I guess, how is it hard to believe that they came in and beat you guys four times in this ballpark? Um, uh, it's just, uh, it's, I mean, they're a good team. So, like, I don't want to say, like, oh, I'm, you know, so shocked that they could win four games, you know? But, um, yeah, I would have, I would have, I think both teams probably would have imagined that somebody would have been able to defend their home turf at least once. After the way you pitched in game five, how confident were you you guys would get one of them here? Um, I mean, about it, I mean, our mindset was just uh, to keep, Keep doing what we had been doing, so it's confident as I guess we were going into Game Five. I'm going to huddle with your family and Scott. I don't know. Chances of coming back here? I don't know. Garrett, the, the experience like of winning. I've made that clear already. Yeah. The experience of, of having won as much as you did at least two years here. Did that kind of give you a little bit of, of a renewed joy of uh, just pitching in this league? And it just seemed like, you know, when you, you have these kinds of chances to win the World Series. Well, I mean, I just think the group is just so unique. I mean, you know, I said it earlier, I'm going to have some friends from this clubhouse probably for the rest of my life. Um, so you just don't take situations like that for granted. And uh, winning a lot uh, is fun. So, yes. And there it is. That is Garrett Cole's comments post-game. And we are going to get some thoughts from Tuttle. Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to, to maybe give a little bit of an idea of what might be going on? No, no, I'll give you, I can, I can jump in. I, I will say it's funny because uh, the only hat I ever got from my agent was uh, from a Super Bowl party. And it didn't have the agent's name on it as much as it had like, hey, you know, we celebrated the Super Bowl in San Diego and here's a, you know, at the San Diego Zoo. So it had an elephant or a lion on it. It didn't really, the agent wasn't out there for promotion. So I, like I said, I, I don't know how many agent hats you have. 
I don't know if your guys gave you a hat to wear around, but uh, they're kind of they're supposed to get you the hat and the T-shirt to wear around, and then they get paid on that deal that they negotiated, not necessarily promoting themselves. But that's a uh, that may be a thought for another day. And I think that part is the strangest part of the whole Garrett Cole situation is that he had a a Scott Boris hat like sitting around, and he was ready to wear it to the uh, to the post game uh, presser because. I think we want to talk about how to handle your emotions and how to do it in the correct way. And, and after yesterday, I saw on Twitter that Garrett posted, you know, how genuine he thought the Houston Astros fans were and what a great, you mentioned it early in the podcast, how Brent Strom really helped him having teammates like Verlander and, you know, catchers like Maldonado and Chirinos, how, how much he grew as a pitcher, even being an experienced major league all-star pitcher. But uh, I think, that presser was just a lot of pent up emotion and, and rightfully so, because I've touched on it in this podcast a ton. I think Garrett Cole should have taken the mound at some point in that game seven world series. And maybe he was just pissed off rightfully. So you actually stole one of my first talking points about Garrett Cole. I want every fan at home, whether you're an Astro fan or a fan of baseball, uh, if you, we can't read the tea leaves into anything, but, this day and age, with the exposure that these guys get, nothing is done accidentally, I don't believe. So keep that in mind, too. But to Tuttle's point, my first thought was, the dude's emotional. And Garrett Cole is a hyper-competitive guy. He always has been. Every interview, every time we've seen him on the mound, he is a bulldog. He wants to crush people. He wants to win. He wants to be on the mound in the big moment. And I do agree with Tuttle in the sense that it was an emotional reaction towards the situation. It wasn't an emotional reaction to Houstonians. It wasn't an emotional reaction to Astro fans. And it was not an emotional reaction to his teammates or coaching staff. It was a, it was the emotion of, damn it, I didn't have a chance to have an impact when I wanted to. And that's what and that's probably why you didn't see any of the Astro gear. And I thought it was unique that he chose to wear the Boris cap because we all know that he's a free agent. That's something that he's actually done a good job of not talking about until that point. And, you know, let's be honest, it's a business. It's, it's a situation where he knows that he is going to be the highest paid player in this free agent market. He is going to be, probably become the highest paid pitcher in the history of the game of baseball. So he wore the Boris hat. And I'm glad you told me it was a Boris hat because I initially thought the B was for Brinks because that is what it's going to take to get him to take his paychecks home is a Brinks truck. The dude is going to be absolutely loaded, but I do understand how the comments could have come off as insensitive, cold, however you want to call it, because he was very direct in what he was saying, but I don't really feel that that was the true Garrett Cole. I feel like it was the emotional post-game seven, everything on the line, comments that were going out there. And again, we can't foresee the future. Like Garrett Cole's the only one that knows why he did what he did. But I think emotions were running very high in him with some pent-up aggression considering the situation and his availability in that game. And probably, obviously, the game didn't go the way he wanted either. That dude wanted a ring. Absolutely. We've talked about this before as well. And I think the other key piece of that is these guys are the ultimate competitors. I mean, yes, he's going to have a Brinks truck full of money. Yes, he is going to get paid a lot. These guys do not play for the money. They realize they get paid a lot and it takes care of their family. And as you said, some people get generational money. 
and it's just nice to be skilled at that, they want to win. Bottom line, they want to win. I still have a little of that in me, and I'm sure you still have a little a bit of that in you. And and we could probably tell some more stories in the offseason. I think I remember pitching in the old uh, Durham Park, you know, Bull Durham being the famous movie. And uh, I was in uh, high A ball, and I had pitched for Winston-Salem. I pitched into the ninth inning, which I had never done before, and it's a 1-1 ball game. And basically, I'd kind of gone maybe three hits or four hits all the way into the ninth inning. The only hit that hurt me was a home run by uh, Kevin Grijack. How about that? I remember the guy's name. We know all this stuff. So Kevin Grijack hit one over the bowl in right field. And and it was one-to-one going to the ninth inning. He came up again in the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth at at old Bull Durham Stadium. I don't even remember what it's called. And... uh, his his line at the point was he was one for three, two strikeouts and one home run. Well, he proceeded to hit one off the bull in the bottom of the ninth inning. He was two for four, two home runs, two punch outs. And I went and sat in front of my locker and I'm not the glove thrower. I'm not upset. I'm not. And I, I proceeded to sit in front of my locker. I remember tearing my hat. I had my little hat and I ripped my hat while I was sitting there. And I'm only saying this story. I mean, it's a little bit of a tales from the bench kind of thing, but I, that's not me. I'm not going to kick stuff and break the garbage can. And we've seen guys do that. And, and I just, now that you kind of bought it to, brought it to the forefront as well, could you imagine being Garrett Cole walking around that bullpen down there? Like, I want to get in. It's like a caged bull, you know, the bull riding thing. He didn't get to get in the game and they lost the World Series. And he felt like he could have contributed. I think that's what we can attribute quite a bit, um, quite a bit of that post-game presser too because if you saw what he wrote yesterday about how great houston is and how much he learned as i already i already touched on earlier i think he's had a chance to decompress just like we all have as astros fans and world series and baseball fans over the past few days no good point and good story i love the stories and i I think you may have just told everybody listening to this podcast how the term bullpen came about (laughs) nice work tuttle uh and i Thank you. I'm not going to sit here and shame Garrett Cole because of what he said, what hat he wore, how insensitive he may have been. I'm not going to shame him one bit because I want everybody to know that baseball and professional sports is a small window of life. If he's lucky, he's going to pitch 10 to 15 years. He's one pitch away from being a Tommy John injury. And who knows if he comes back from that. He earned the right to be in the position he's in and recognizing that the earning potential that these guys have is a small window. Go get yours. He is in a special, special place right now, understanding that he is a free agent and he can move forward. Go get yours. That being said, a lot of fans were, would he take a discount to come to Texas? Nope. There ain't no discount on the table. I think that probably spoke more more to me with him wearing that hat is, if you're going to get me, you're going to pay me. Man, maybe it's not going to be here in Texas. So get yourself mentally prepared for the negotiations for Garrett Cole to be absolutely ludicrous because he is going to break all kinds of payroll records. Yeah, I think David Price got, you know, I'll bring my, without my spot track knowledge, David Price got, I think, $217 million deal three years ago. You can expect it to be way north of $217 million. And, um, you know, we had the the Harper kind of sweepstakes this offseason. 
And, uh, and I think Garrett Cole is going to be right up there. And we saw guys like Bregman and uh, Arenado, those guys got paid as well, kind of pre-free agency. You know, I don't know if that was as much of a team discount as it was just to say these guys are kind of the future of baseball and they're in that class of top 10, top 20 players. But Garrett Cole, as you said, one, you're one pitch away from blowing out that arm. He throws 100 miles an hour. He had a Cy Young capable year. He's represented by Scott Boris Corporation. He's looking at, you know, n- you know, north of $300 million deal, I would guess. Yeah. And we're going to talk plenty in this offseason about uh, some of the free agent deals. But keep in mind that Scott Boris will we'll remind you in a future pro- podcast who he has. But he has the potential this offseason to, to make over a billion dollars in contracts. Just try and keep that in mind. He's got Keuchel, J.D. Martinez. Strasburg has an opt-out in his contract. Anthony Rendon is a Boris guy. So there's going to be a lot of money floating around this, uh, this offseason potentially for the Scott Boris clients. And this has been a very long podcast. It's been talking about the World Series recap. It's been talking about Game 7, some of the topics that our fans want to listen to. So we are going to abruptly end the situation with that Garrett Cole comment and move on. We're not going to have time for what will Tuttle say, but it is the weekend. So the weekend, and we're not going to have Blum and Blummer either, but this is the weekend. And what we love about the weekend is that we have the potential to get some of the picks. And David Tuttle, my friends at home listening to this, my boy, David Tuttle, stepped up last week and went 3-0. and He has continually given us some very good picks. Up until the point of last week, he was at a 667 winning percentage, and he proceeded to clean house last week and put up some great numbers. So we are going to just head right into it because this is the weekend podcast. This is what you live for, and we're going to get right into it with Don't Bet On It. Nice, Blummer. Thanks. That's a good good lead-in. Um, I, I, I knew we were going to do the podcast this morning, so this is going to sound like hindsight. I should have tweeted it out maybe, but uh, I was going to take Arizona plus 10 last night, and uh, of course they covered, but uh, <laughs> nobody cares about that. So I like to uh, game, I like to bet on the games that we're going to watch. So I'm going to take Virginia Tech plus 16.5 against the old Notre Dame guys, the Golden Helmets, the Golden Domers. So... Why? Remember, no rhyme or reason, because it's 16 and a half points. They might score a late touchdown or kick a late field goal just to get into, get, just get into the window. And that's my college game. So Virginia Tech plus 16 and a half. Obviously, if you can get it higher than that, 17, 17 and a half, do so. And then uh, I'm going to take Tennessee, the professional Tennessee Titans, plus four and a half. Um, I believe they're playing the Jacksonville Jaguars. And then I'm going to take the Philadelphia Eagles minus three. So Virginia Tech plus 16 and a half, Tennessee Titans plus four and a half. And the Philadelphia Eagles, I'm going to give up some points, but we're going to give up three points and uh, take them to win. There are a couple reasons behind that, but you don't need to know the reasons, remember, because you're not going to bet on it anyway. So folks, don't bet on it and win yourself a ton of money. That is outstanding. Maybe just start a pool within your friends at home on the don't bet on it segments. If you're listening to this podcast within your friends who listen also, maybe just kind of put your money in a pool, bet against Tuttle, bet for Tuttle and get some results and take your friends money. That's always the best part of doing it too, is not losing yours, taking the other guy's money. It's been a great Blum and uh, uh, Blum and Blummer. It's been a great Bleacher Blums because we had a lot of insight. We did extend it a little bit because we wanted to get in depth and get those opinions, get those numbers to you. We absolutely appreciate everybody who's been listening throughout the course of the season. And again, this is just the beginning for David Tuttle and I. 
We are going to do our best to bring you some fun off-season topics. Obviously, the free agency is going to be out there. We'll do our best to talk about that and give you updates on what's happening. I'll do my best to keep my ear to the to the grindstone and give you what uh, any information I get on the Houston Astros. I want to get people on this podcast to talk a little bit more about baseball, but also talk a little bit more about humanity and uh, get some insight. I know that uh, Julia doesn't know this. I don't know if Julia listens to our podcast, but I'm going to reach out to her and maybe get some behind the scenes that maybe we didn't get in uh, some of the some of the coverage that she did have on social media. Maybe get some behind the scenes because she's invested just like you all at home. And I know you guys are going to miss her uh, during the off season, but she'll be on with the Rockets. And I know everybody loves to hear her voice. So she was actually traveling with the team. So I'd be real curious to see what, you know, what the moods were on the flights, what the moods were after game six, going into game seven and really get, uh, she has a great idea of what these guys are feeling. So look for that in future podcasts. We love all the first responders and military out there. We appreciate everything you're doing and giving us the opportunity to have the freedom to come out here and actually create a podcast that uh, can speak to a lot of you. And I know that you do listen to us. So just know that we thank you. Future podcast, obviously, is going to have some Weddle Tuttle say. I know we missed out on it today, but great stuff today, Tuttle. How do you want to finish this thing off? Yeah, we'll have Weddle Tuttle say, Blum and Blummer. I want to, my shout out will go to the firefighters out here in California, obviously. We have PG&E giving us those rolling blackouts. We haven't been subject to that down here, but certainly the uh, guys have put their life on the line. We say it every week, but hopefully it doesn't fall on uh, deaf ears. But those guys are doing things that uh, that you know most of us, especially in our old age here, wouldn't dream of doing, but keeping us safe and uh, safe and sound in our own home. So uh, yeah, I, I you know I hope fans don't take this as a depressing podcast. I think obviously we put a lot of numbers in there. We talked about momentum, but uh, you know what? The World Series favorites for next year, the World Series champ favorites are the Houston Astros. We talked about it being the golden era of the Houston Astro baseball time. They won it in 17. They were back in it uh, just short last year, back in it this year. And, uh, you know, there's there's hope on the horizon and the hot stove is going to heat up. And we'd love to have, like you said, Julia on the podcast and kind of kind of take this to a new level. So hopefully you can bear with this one. This is a lot of Astros recap and uh, and we'll bring you tons of more insight as the offseason continues. It's going to be a good time. We appreciate you being in the bleachers with Tuttle and I. We have gotten some great responses and some great downloads over the last couple of uh, episodes. So stay with us. A lot to look forward to. It is the end of the season, but it's not the end of Bleacher Blumps. We are going to continue to come at you. And you know what? Without baseball out there, it's actually going to force us to maybe dig a little bit deeper and get into some of the psyche of the offseason for a baseball player maybe touch on some NBA and uh, football as it starts to get through the middle of the season. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, shoot, we might even get into a little bit more of what the home life is for us and give you all of our brilliant parenting tips and ideas because we're such great dads. It's coming down to the final two here at the end of the season for Father of the Year. And I know Tuttle's in contention. He does a great job. But great being on with you, Tuttle. And uh, great being on with everybody else in the bleachers. And this, this is it. Season's over. Washington Nationals, congratulations. Enjoy that trophy and enjoy the parade. Meanwhile, here in Houston, we're going to move on. And uh, we're going to continue, as always, to get after it. And we're always going to believe it. 